Father, thank you for this morning, for yet another beautiful day to bask in your grace and your love, and for making this day special, just as all others truly are, given the right perspective. You are sovereign, Father, and we are not. We are merely partakers of your divine nature, filled with your spirit, enjoying sweet, everlasting fellowship with you. What a tremendous blessing it is, not only to know these things to be true, but to experience them in time, long before we are even perfected in heaven. We pray, Father, that our hearts remain humble and that your grace be received fully to whatever degree you deem appropriate so that we can take the gospel of your Son our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, out to a world that is terribly lost. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this message, this morning's message title is The Difficult Passages, Grace and Works, Part 11. Uh, if you've missed any of the previous lessons, I certainly encourage you to seek them out. I had uh, an individual, a very grateful individual from California who listens uh, faithfully and even supports the ministry faithfully online, tell me that uh, he listened to one lesson three times. Maybe it, might, it was three, maybe even four times. Uh, and uh, he just basically was saying that it kept feeding him and that he was so grateful um, for that thing that was happening in his soul. And obviously the implication there is that we do do all that work and on the website so that those things are available to all of you. I want to begin uh, this morning with the same passage we began with on Thursday because it is the perfect setup for the continuation of this series on grace and works, especially in light of all of our work on the gospel proper, which stated plainly, I mean, you know, what is the gospel? To me, it's a very simple concept. You might say it's God's plan for saving fallen man from the, from the depths of spiritual depravity. That's a wonderful way to think about the good news. It really is good news that God is willing to save us from the depths of spiritual depravity, a depravity that we were all born into. Whether we like it or not, whether we accept that truth or not is not the issue. We were born spiritually dead, depraved. And we have a big problem because we don't get fellowship, uh, not to mention even making it to heaven, being given eternal life and imputed righteousness, all those theological things that we've been covering, we don't get any of that unless God's grace covers us, unless God's grace makes that happen. So, plainly stated, you might say the gospel is the good news that God has a plan for saving fallen man from the depths of depravity. Go to Luke 18.24. Luke 18.24. This is why this wonderful passage that we're about to read resonates so well with all that we've been studying. And then these practical questions. I love the disciples because they were, you know, just regular people. And they weren't, you know, like the Gnostics. They weren't, quote-unquote, educated, so to speak. They weren't intellects, so to speak. Um, 
And so what we see is this sort of raw human um, back and forth with the Lord. Um, and they asked the same questions a, a child would ask, frankly. Look at Luke 18.24, And Jesus looked at him, the rich young ruler is in view, most of us know the story by heart at this point, and said how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. I might have some uh, perspective on this that some of you don't, doesn't matter. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that America is very wealthy. What does that say then about our country and about our neighbors, about us? Well, what did Jesus say? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Most Americans, everybody in here, as far as I know, is considered rich by world standards. Don't believe me? Come to India with me. You think you're suffering poverty? You're not. So then you have to apply this principle. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to come to him. Just think about that for a moment. America is very wealthy. That's why this is an uphill battle. That's why churches like this are, are small and sort of located in sort of corners where people like you will find it eventually, seek and you shall find. But it's really, it's a real difficult battle. Why? Because we're living in the midst of wealth. And Jesus wasn't a liar. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for wealthy people to make it to the kingdom of God. I didn't say that. So then you have to ask yourselves, I mean, we might say this, right? And this is what I was getting at earlier with the disciples. Look at verse 26. They who heard it said what? Then who can be saved? <laughs> I mean, we might say that in our own country. If that's true, then who can be saved? Well, what does he say? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. All things are possible with God. That's why we don't lose hope. All things are possible with God. God gives grace to who then? To the humble. This is what he's been driving home now for years from this pulpit. God gives grace to the humble. Those of us who understand verses 26 and 27 intimately, that is, God gives grace to the humble. And I gave you this sort of plain vanilla, you know, human speak up here on the board. Well, what does humility look like in its rawest form? It looks like this. This might be an internal conversation we all have. You know, I, I want to, but I know that I'm unable. I understand my depravity, but I also understand that I'm not able to eject myself, to, quote, save slash deliver myself from that which I was born in, totally depraved, to perfect righteousness so that I might have fellowship with God. I can't do that thing. I want to, but I'm not able. This is what true humility looks like in its rawest form. And just to sort of give you an example of that, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. 
Luke 17, 5. Increase our faith. In other words, we can't do it. I can't even increase. Not Nobody here that has any faith whatsoever that means anything, that has any eternal value whatsoever, did not manufacture it themselves. God gave it to them. That's the grace of God. And so we might pray like the apostles did. Increase our faith. That's my only hope in all of this. The follow-up question then is, because we've sort of covered that in a fair amount of detail in the past, so I'm going to go quickly now for the first, I don't know, half an hour or so. The follow-up question is, well, how do I know when God has granted me this or that faith? What's the practical ramification? How do I know? Well, Scripture answers this question. Go to 1 Corinthians 2.10. 1 Corinthians 2.10. I mean, how do I know? that God has answered that prayer for me. How do we know? And it's a very personal thing. And there's only so much an honest teacher like myself can say on the subject. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, what it's going to appear like in your life. All I can tell you is that the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is all over it. So 1 Corinthians 2.10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. In other words, God the Holy Spirit has a special ministry to us. And He will convict us. He will reveal to us things like faith. Do I or do I not have this faith? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. 1 Corinthians 2.13 Which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. I mean, that's about as good as it gets from an honest pulpit. How do you know? All I can tell you is that God the Holy Spirit will let you know. You may even have good works to point to that help you out in that way. And you have to have the Spirit tell you, yes, that was a good work from me, because there's a lot of religious people out there that do so-called good works. But they're wood, hay, and straw, because their motivation was wrong, because they didn't have the faith to do it with the right motivation. And so God the Holy Spirit helps us with these things. Our prototype, which is just another name for our perfect point of reference, is Jesus Himself, of course, for He is absolute humility and faithfulness. And we see the manifestation of these truths in His words. Go to Matthew 26, 42. So we looked at this this past week as well. Matthew 26, 42. One of the things we know when we truly possess faith, faith from God, is this thing. Is this thing. Because there's always that tension in the soul. The flesh wants to go this way. The new creature wants to go that way. There's always this tension in the soul. And so we know that when uh, we align, or as we say more theologically, when we orient to God, 
we know that Matthew 26, 42 makes a lot more sense. Let's look at it. Matthew 26, 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, this is Jesus, of course, the perfect, humble, faithful servant. My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, he's just about ready to suffer the passion, if you would, your will be done. Now, that's where we anchored Thursday's message. Your will be done. Up here on the board. Your will be done. This is, guys, you can't keep flipping the scriptures. I can see that plain as day. Your will be done. This is the sign of a truly humble heart. Think about that for a second. When you go to prayer, we'll get to this in a moment, but look at the Lord and Savior. He said what? I'm completely subservient. This cup is a one heck of a cup that I'm about to drink. If it can't pass, your will be done. And this is the thing that we have to think about. This is part of orienting. This is fundamental to orienting to the sovereign God of the universe. Your will be done. That is the exact antithesis of my will be done. Which is how I believe most Christians even play out life. It's always their will. It's never his will until their will and his will happen to coincide. And isn't that a lovely day? And that's when they're blowing trumpets in the square. But it's not about God's will. It's about their will intersecting at times. That's not orientation at all. That's not authority orientation. That's when God has become the subservient one and man has become the sovereign in his own life. That's no different than this. Being born in the dominion of sin, the sovereignty of sin. So your will be done up here on the board. This is the sign of a truly humble heart that has been given faith. It is evidenced when two hearts agree or confess the same thing. Since God is immutable, that means He never changes, it is man whose faith is reconciled to God. Your will be done. That's a very different perspective than God's will orienting to man's. We're the ones with the problem. We are not perfect. I have to time our way is not His ways, so says Scripture. Our thoughts are not His thoughts, so says Scripture. Your will be done. Furthermore, up here on the board, it's this reconciliation to God's will that describes the essence of authority orientation. The Spirit's been doing an awful lot of work on this topic of authority orientation. You notice every few months, I'd say no more than six, the idea of authority orientation comes percolating up in our lessons. You ever notice that? Every so often, authority orientation. Authority orientation. Authority orientation. Why do you think that is? Because of what he just taught us. It's no longer your will be done, it's my will be done. And God the Holy Spirit's going... You are not sovereign. I'm sovereign. Your will be done. It's this reconciliation of God's will that describes the essence of authority orientation. Jesus, being our perfect prototype, actually teaches us to pray that His Father's will be done. Go to Matthew 6, 8. 
Matthew 6, 8. Matthew 6, verse 8. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our orientation. Jesus Christ is saying, this is how you should pray. And remember, pray is not just, hey, Father, can you give me more stuff? I'm having a little problem over here. Can you do more for me? Because this is my will. My will is that you keep doing for me. And if you don't do for me, I'll never go to church again because I'm a selfish. You get it? And if you don't do stuff for me, if my will isn't done, then I'm quitting this whole thing. And the sovereign God of the universe says, you know what, I gave you a free will, quit. But just know where you're going. You're probably going to die in your sins. Unless you have a little change of heart. Unless you have a little attitude adjustment. Until you recognize that I'm the sovereign. I'm the creator. The clay doesn't say to the potter, why'd you make me this way? The clay doesn't say to the potter, do this or do that. You're the clay. How dare and how audacious is man. So Jesus Christ said, pray this way. Fellowship this way. Be subservient this way. After all, you're praying to the God of the universe, the sovereign in the universe. Your will be done. You see the orientation. It's no longer the bratty little kid that's just asking for stuff. It's now an orientation to the sovereign will of the God of the universe. And so Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Your will be done. Jesus never asked his disciples, nor any of his sheep, us, frankly, to orient to his Father in any way humanly possible that he didn't first do. In fact, up here on the board, your will be done. The Word tells us that we believers are predestined, called for this purpose, that's 1 Peter 2.21, to orient to the sovereign God of the universe. We are born dis oriented therefore we must seek orientation and let's face it an arrogant person never does that i don't care how sweet and lovable they are if they're arrogant they're never going to seek orientation with god a humble person seeks to orient to god we are born disoriented we seek orientation when god sees that humility he says I will orient you. I will take you out of the depravity that you were born in, and I will make you alive in Christ Jesus. That's grace. That's how he delivers us. We are born disoriented, therefore we must seek orientation. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. If there was one human being ever to personify authority orientation to the sovereign father, it was Jesus Christ, the son. Perfectly oriented, always. That was our example. And because of that, because 
we believers live literally against the mainstream world, the cosmos, if you would. Remember, the God of this world is Satan himself. We are going to suffer. Do you think they're really going to make it easy? I remember when I used to do football practice when I was a kid, I used to run through these things, and everybody would like be smacking you. <laughs> That's what it's like. When you're running as a believer, it's like everybody has a baton or some kind of a thing, and you're running down this, this, the narrow road, and people are literally lined up whacking you. That's what it's like to be a Christian, to be a practicing Christian in this world. This world hates us. But Jesus gave us an example. If God says, go through the, whatever you want to call that thing, I forget what it's called in football, go through that thing, then you go through that thing. It doesn't matter how many bumps and bruises you get, and you will suffer because Jesus Christ went through a long time ago. And they killed him. As we learned this past week, all of this is part of authority orientation. If the authority in your life says, go that way, and you say, but, 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 it's going to hurt, you go that way. Imagine if all our American soldiers just decided, you know what, I think I'm just going to be a conscientious objector. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't like what my boss is saying. You know, if I run up that hill, I might get shot. I might get wounded. You know, no kidding. Do you, you want to be a soldier or not? What, what is the deal here? Oh, you just want to wear the uniform. <laughs> I get it. You just want to go, oh, I get it. You want to go to the bashes after. You want to go to the officer's club, the NCO club. You just want to have all the goodies bag. But you don't actually want to suffer. Hmm. Authority orientation. Orientation to the sovereign God of the universe implies authority orientation. This or the very relationship demands a master-slave paradigm. It's intrinsic. It's an intrinsic fact. If you orient to a sovereign, you orient to his authority. You're not orienting to a peer. You're orienting to an authority. So if you orient to God, you are authority-oriented. That's what it means to orient. And frankly, God's not on trial, remember. You don't need any other reason than the Lord who has commanded you to submit, to submit. No human authority is perfect, yet all authority is delegated by God. Your focus needs to be on this fact, not the failures of those in authority, because that's what Satan does, right? He loves the corner cases. But look at this idiot over here. Look at this guy in authority. Look at this politician. He's a moron. So who elected him? Oh, this person over here, this cop, look at he's crooked. He's, take, he's on the take. He's beating up people. But what about the 99.9% of other cops on the force that are doing their job? Oh, look at this pastor over here. He's, a, he's always doing things for sordid gain. He's a bazillionaire, and he's got five yachts and three homes and everything else. And What about him? What about him? He's evil. What are we going to do? We're going to throw out, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater type thing? As we just noted in Scripture, Jesus left us his example. Verse 21 said, he left you an example for you to follow in his steps. This example in context is that we not only orient to our Father's will, but we are going to suffer for doing so. 
Not that we just orient, but we're going to suffer. That was Jesus' example. Perfect orientation of the Father's will. And who suffered more than him? Unjustly. No one. That's our prototype. Up here on the board. 1 Peter 2.24 And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Well, thank God he was authority oriented. Well, thank God he said, your will be done. Not really enjoying this cup, but thank God he said, your will be done. Even though he knew he was going to suffer a horrific death. Up here on the board. What do we learn from this prototype? Jesus suffered unjustly for the sake of others. If we are to, quote, follow his steps, 1 Peter 2.21, then it is fair to say that we too might follow his pattern. And this is the beauty. This is what the Spirit's trying to bring out of Scripture. Others may be healed, verse 24, in some smaller way. You don't know. All you focus on is your will and how terrible it is for you when you're disoriented. What about other people? Seriously, what about other people? I just thought of Jim right here. Now, I know Jim well enough to know that he's probably here at least 50% of the reason for all of you, to encourage all of you. You in pain, Jim? He won't admit it. He's like, no. Read! Why? I'm encouraged by seeing him and Pat here. And they're both in pain, physically. But they also are mature enough to realize that it's encouraging to me and to all of you to see them sitting there. Thy will be done. Greater love is known than this, than he lay down his life for self, others. Wasn't that part of Jesus' example? Absolutely. So as we begin with this morning, thy will be done is a very large statement. It's a very large statement. And it is indicative of a humble, faithful, authority-oriented heart. Thy will be done. Your will be done up here on the board. This is the sign of a truly humble heart that has been given faith. It is evidenced when two hearts agree or confess the same thing. Since God is immutable, he never changes. It is man whose faith is reconciled to God. You are not born. I was having this discussion with uh, Tammy yesterday. You are not born. It doesn't matter how sweet little kids are. They are self-absorbed. Self-centered, egocentric little people that grow up to be the same way unless God changes them. They just get better at hiding it. It's the funniest thing. People don't do things for God until He gives them the faith, until He literally changes them. They do things for themselves. There are some people that go to church for themselves. It's because there's this little checkbox. They go, mm-hmm. When everybody asks them now at Thanksgiving, I went to church. Yay! Big deal. 
You went to church. Big deal. Who's this about anyways? You, again, as always. You did this thing. You helped an old lady across the road. Big deal. Where's your heart? Are you humble? Is it for you? Who's this about? It's this reconciliation of God's will that describes the essence of authority orientation. Now, tying this back, I'm still going quickly because these are all points of review. And if you didn't listen to this past week's lessons and you're confused, that's your own fault. It's this reconciliation of God's will that describes the essence of authority orientation. Again, tying this back to our current subject now. We are on grace and works, after all, the so-called difficult passages. Grace is not difficult, nor is works, and nor are any of the passages that describe them. They're only difficult because man is man. Man perverts everything good. Why? Because the truth is offensive to the flesh. It's that simple. People don't want to hear the truth. That's why, look at this church. A church like this that teaches this kind of truth, you would think would be packed. But it's not. Why? Because people don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear some ridiculous candy butt pastor say, it's okay, Yo, look at you, you made it to church. Yeah, and they have this little queer voice. Oh, look at you. And they make sure they, you know, they do the white strips on their teeth so they have perfectly pearly white teeth. Oh, look at you. You're such a good little girl. You're such a good little boy. Oh, I get so mad. I feel like flipping this thing over. But I don't want to rip my shirt because I'd be jacked up. <laughs> what about grace and works? What about this thing? You want truth? This is the truth. You're hearing it. Not always palatable to the flesh. I get it. Trust me. Guess whose guess who's person all this has to go through first? And guess who's convicted? Hours upon hours a day. This guy. You think I'm perfect? No way. I'm just as wretched in many ways, worse than all of you in some ways. I'm sure of it. This is, look, but you know what? I'm humble. I just want to know the truth. I want to seek and find. I want to keep knocking. If it means I'm, not, I'm knocked down to my knees again for the 52nd thousandth time in a day, then so be it. I either want truth or I don't. Because you know what truth is? Grace. Grace is foundational to authority orientation, since authority orientation is a good work of faith. Up here on the board, I'm going to give you the practical side of that principle. If this is true, then it stands the reason that a person who doesn't produce any good works is a person who rejects God's grace. On the practical side, we have also noted up here on the board, grace and works. Receiving God's grace is a respect for authority issue. If God came down to you right now and said, all of you, put this on your lips. Like, what? My lips aren't chapped. Put it on your lips. But they were on his first. <laughs> Have you seen them? <laughs> I think he's got something going on. Right? Put it on. You have to put it on. 
that would be receiving grace. Maybe God knows that it's going to go, you know, to sub-zero degrees tonight, unbelievably, and your lips are going to crack up, but because you had this on. You don't know. How do you know? That's the whole point. How do you know what God knows? You don't. That's the whole point. So when he says, do this thing, I think of Abraham, right? Go. Where am I going? I'll tell you when you get there. I don't like that. Well, too bad. Either you're oriented or you're not. Too bad. Generals don't tell the the privates what's going on. They say, jump in this little boat and go to this island over here and then pick up a rifle and what happens, happens. You've been trained to do that little thing. So go do it. I'm not doing it until you tell me what's going on. Oh, I got to invite a private now into the, into the war room with the president and the, and the four-star generals or else he's not going to serve. Does that not sound like the average Christian even or so-called Christian? Half of them aren't even saved, I'm convinced of it. I'm not doing it. Well, that's not authority orientation, is it? Receiving God's grace is a respect for authority issue. Authority orientation itself is a grace gift. Obedience in receiving more grace results in receiving more grace. This is a key element in the doctrine of grace upon grace that commences, begins at salvation. John 1.16, Matthew 13.12, etc., the net net of authority orientation is that it is a function of sovereignty orientation. The net net of authority orientation is that it's a function of sovereignty orientation. Who's the ultimate authority in this world, in this universe? God is. Who delegates all authority? God does. So says Scripture. So if you're going to if you're going to orient to God, then you must orient orient to his delegated authorities up here on the board that's what sovereignty means that's the manifestation of sovereignty in the world sovereignty comes down to who has the rights in the equation think of it this way this was the other angle we took i gave you a sort of an analogy of the house god being the sovereign in a household who, who makes the rules, in other words. It is his house, after all. It is his family, after all. Who makes the rules? God does. Sovereignty, then, comes down to who has the rights in the equation. Who has the rights in the house? God does. Unless God has given you rights, you have none. For example, no man has ever, given, has ever been given the right to put God on trial or challenge his authority. They do, but they don't have the right. Their flesh tells them they have the right, but that's a mistake. There's a difference between the ability to do something with free will and the right to do it. Do you have the right to steal a Brock's candy from the little bin at Stop and Shop? Stick around long enough. People do it all the time. Doesn't mean it's right, but people do it all the time. No man has ever been given the right to put God on trial or challenge his authority. This is why we say something is unrighteous or unright. It's because the perpetrator does not have the right to do what they are doing. Drilling down a bit more practically up here on the board on unrighteousness or 
something being not right. You don't have the right, in other words. The last thing we need to do is encourage the flesh and others, especially regarding salvation. A dead man that thinks he can do something good is gravely mistaken. They are truly deceived. If you think on the grand scale, life itself has been counterfeited. The Bible describes unbelievers as unrighteous because their works are not right. They are not alive. They are dead. They are unable to do what is right. Why? Because they're still dead. They were born dead. They haven't been made alive yet. So they're dead. So anything they do is no good. It doesn't matter how good it looks, whether you're feeding people at a soup kitchen or not. That is not the point. God's not impressed with human works. That is religion. We don't add anything to the grace of God. We do not have the what? Right. But that is precisely what man likes to do because it's his will be done. Not God's will be done. His will be done. We say this, that we are born unright in unrighteousness. The Bible describes an unbeliever as being dead in their sins. That's Ephesians 2.1. The good news is, by the grace of God, up here on the board, if God demands good works from his own children, and he does, he creates them in such a way that they are able to do what is right. Only a living person is able to produce anything. A dead person cannot. Don't believe me again? Take a trip to the morgue. Hey, Harry, stand up. Harry! Hey, if you sit up right now in your casket, I will give your kids $10 million each. Harry doesn't get up. Why not? Because he's dead. What would man do? Tie a fishing string to his arm. Weekend at Bernie's, right? Hey, I want the 10 million. And that would be some guy behind the curtain. <laughs> That's man trying to do something to receive something good. Doesn't work that way. The real, now this is where I'll slow down a little bit. Again, I'm going quickly because these are all points of review. The real critical point from Thursday's lessons, or Thursday's lesson was something that I hadn't previously fully articulated yet. And I really need you to concentrate. And I'm not making a doctrine here. So don't go writing this down and saying it's the doctrine of the two gospel perversions. I'm not doing that. I'm saying, here's a way to look at how the gospel itself is perverted. So you've got a, something perfect. Something perfect, right? You say, this, say this is the gospel. I hate to do this, but say this is the gospel. And you say, well, I'm going to, and this is it. And this is all God ever disclosed. And you say, I'm going to put this on that. That was, that was the time when I helped the old lady across the street. This right here, God's going to see that. It's going to help me get into heaven. This little thing right here. Now we say that's garbage, right? Rightfully so. That's salvation or faith plus works, right? But what if we do this? What did I just do? It's no longer the gospel, is it? This is the gospel. This is not. This is the same kind of perversion as this. Neither one of them are the gospel. This is the gospel. We don't have the right to do this or add something to it. Get it? 
So the point being, those are the two perversions that we've been talking about, two gospel perversions. People talk about adding to salvation. We often call that out as faith plus works equals salvation, pointing to legalism, religion. I'm going to help God. He's going to see how wonderful I am, and that's going to get me into heaven. Garbage doctrine. Throw it out. Doesn't save, never saved a person ever. But how often does someone or anyone talk about the other gospel perversion? We might call it subtracting from salvation, where there's faith minus God's works equals salvation, minus something that God does at salvation. In other words, God says, here's the good news. Here's how I'm going to save you. And you go, nope. What about that one? No one ever talks about that one. Why? Because this one tends to be more accommodating to man. And we'll get into that a little bit. So there's two gospel perversions, adding to salvation or even subtracting from salvation, pointing to religions that actually subtract some of God's grace in saving man. What does the Bible say? Straight up, the Bible says this. Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor what? Take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. We don't have the right to add or subtract from what God does at salvation. Neither one. Up here on the board. The, quote, other gospel perversion. This theology, subtracting from salvation, supposes that God actually does less than he does when he saves a person. That's the perversion. It supposes that God actually does less than he does when he saves a person. And you say, why would anybody opt for that? My will be done. I just want a ticket to heaven. I don't actually have a humble heart. I'm like the rich young ruler. How do I get this goodie bag? Jesus said what? You have to give up the self-life. Oh, no. Easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was basically saying what's up here on the board, that there's some people that don't want all of God's grace at salvation. Therefore, they don't actually want the gospel. They want some other version of it that lets them keep something for themselves and get the goodie bag. This causes a... This is the problem. Now, I spend a lot of time contemplating, look, theology. How does all of this fit together in a unified way? so that I can teach you simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Because if we inadvertently complicate something as fundamental as the gospel, and think of the gospel like, they, like Jesus described in the parable, it's a seed and it grows. Well, if I pervert the, the core thing, the seed, what happens to what grows? Things are going this way and that way. It's supposed to go... This is the problem. You cannot pervert the gospel. But if you do, there's a huge ripple effect in the doctrines that one adopts as truth. Why? Because as soon as you pervert the gospel, as soon as you do this, where does this go? Oh, 
I got to do something with it because I'll put it over here. I'll put it over here. Yeah, I'll make it a work of man then. I'll pervert it and I'll put it over here. And since it's a perversion, it can't be anything but, guess what? A work of man. That's the flesh. See, man likes to add either works here or somehow pervert this and then add them over here. But they're both the same problem. Man's doing whatever he wants with the gospel. Man's mocking with God's grace. It's a subtle one, you understand? The problem is, like I just depicted, this causes a massive ripple effect in the doctrines one adopts as truth. The fundamental issue, though, is that if you remove some of God's grace from its proper place, and I'm speaking as a theologian now, so follow along. If you remove some of God's grace from its proper place in your theology, for example, something that he does at salvation, then you must, quote, find another place to insert it in your theology. And typically this is done at some place, quote, after salvation. Well, if it wasn't part of the gospel, then it must be something that's dealt with later. So I'll stop perverting scripture and I'll start interpreting it in a way that makes this thing that's out of place, quote, become in place. And the only way you can do that is start to pervert the interpretation of the word of God. And when you do that, as many of you can attest, things become not easier, more complicated, more difficult. Think of it this way. Perversion means unrighteousness. As soon as you muck with the pristine gospel, something unrighteous exists. Anytime we misappropriate holy scripture, it is no longer holy. It's only holy when it's right. I mean, read Matthew 4 when you go home. Matthew 4 was when Satan used Scripture to tempt Christ. That wasn't holy. Why? Because it was misappropriated. And Jesus Christ corrected him and said, it's written this. You're trying to trip me up by misappropriating Scripture. Satan's a master at that. Anytime we misappropriate Holy Scripture, it is no longer holy. I hope you know what I mean by that. Scripture is always holy. But it's how we place it. If we misappropriate it. In fact, we have taken something perfect and perverted it. Since God's Word is perfect, the perversion is not. Any derivative of such a perversion is also no longer righteous. Any derivative. In other words, there's a ripple effect. If I go like this and I say, okay, this is going to go right here. Now I've got this situation, right? Then what happens to other doctrines that are deriv derived from this one? Now they start going over here. They start meandering off, right? And then the further it goes, it's like, you know, like it goes like this. It fans out all the discrepancies. That's what perversion does. And if you pervert the core doctrine in the Bible, 
the gospel, what do you expect? You're going to be confused. It's going to get really, really difficult. And this is how man, you ready? This is how intellectual man deals with that kind of difficulty. You ready? He makes up doctrines. And he makes up huge words, multisyllabic, hyphenated words to describe stuff that doesn't require that level of intellect. I mean, if it did, wouldn't Jesus have picked other people that weren't educated? Wouldn't he have gone out and picked other people than fishermen? I mean, if it was an intellectual pursuit, if this whole thing was about intellectualism, wouldn't he have done that? I think so. But he didn't. What does the word say? God's going to use the simple things to shame the wise. Any derivative of such a perversion is also no longer righteous. So to put this into context here, if someone subtracts from the gospel, even if they are able to somehow fit scripture into something tidy downstream, trust me, you want to go, I don't, I won't, I won't give them to you, but I got reams of commentaries. They're all different and they've all made scripture fit somehow. But this is the only commentary that you all really should be focusing on. Truth be told. Everything you need is in here. If someone subtracts from the gospel, even if they are able to somehow, quote, fit scripture into something, quote, tidy downstream, what do we have if not a perversion and something now unrighteous? As soon as you muck with something perfect, it's no longer right. Does that make sense? Therefore, it's no longer righteous. Anything unrighteous, any work, you ready? Any work that is done that is unrighteous, who do we attribute it to? God or man? God never does anything unrighteous. What are we left with? Unrighteous man. Therefore, it's an unrighteous work. doesn't matter if it happens at the so-called point of salvation or later on the entire thing is unrighteous. Therefore, it is a work of man. See what I said? You can add to the gospel. That's faith plus works. That's adding to the gospel. That's a work of man. Everybody knows that one. But what happens when you subtract from it and now you have to meddle with it later on? Well, that also, since it's unrighteous, has to be a what? Work of man. So you see, what I'm saying is either you accept God's grace and the simplicity of it at salvation or you're one person that starts propagating the works of man. It's either grace and God's works or it's something other than grace and man's works. Furthermore, since it is man's will that, quote, moves perfectly ordered scripture and rearranges it, the end result, no matter how, quote, pretty it is, is a work of man. This is the work of God. This is the work of man. This is the work of God. This is the work of man. This is the only work of God. And it's pretty simple. It's actually very simple. 
But he says you've got to accept all of it. All of it. Not just the parts that you like or the part that, you know, suits you or is accommodating to your flesh. Anytime you muck with it, it's a work of man. Gospel perversions. God will never pervert his own word. There's only one way that verbal plenary scripture fits, and that is his way. Any rearrangement of scripture immediately leaves the effort up to man, hence it is a work of man. Yeah. Any rearrangement of scripture immediately leaves the effort up to man, hence it is a work of man. That's why a lot of you can attest that you didn't have peace for years in your soul. You had a lot of knowledge, but you didn't have this peace that many of you are telling me you now have. Why? Because God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. That's what Scripture says. So if you're unsettled in your soul, especially about something as fundamental and simple as the gospel, it's because of some perversion. You've either added or subtracted from it. And that left you in a predicament. And then you couldn't even read your Bible, and you had morons telling you you're unable, you're not qualified, you're too stupid to read your Bibles. Just listen to me, and I'll give you bigger, 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 and bigger and bigger words. You're not too stupid to read your Bible. You're beloved in God's eyes. He wouldn't cripple you that way. Are you kidding? He wouldn't cripple you that way. I mean, you have Him, His Spirit ministering to you. Read your Bibles. Read them. Any rearrangement of Scripture immediately leaves the effort up to man, hence it is a work of man. This often, or this work often begins with subtracting from the gospel and completes with the consummation of a perverted theology. I hope you see what I'm teaching you right now. And if that, and that, that is, if you subtract from the gospel, you, man, are left to complete this unholy work on your own. You understand? If, if you pervert the gospel, you're left to complete this unholy work on your own. And if it's not simple and it becomes more complicated the longer you live, Something's wrong. Honest to goodness, something is wrong. If the longer you live and the more you read your Bible, the more complicated your theology comes, something's wrong. Not right. Something's terribly wrong. It's because you were left on your own. After you decided to pervert the gospel, you were left to complete the rest of this unholy endeavor on your own. That's why it was a work of man. So it's either works done at salvation or it's works somehow after salvation. But then if you look at the whole theology, it's just works that is perverting God's grace as a general rule. God is never going to approve of something that departs from the core truth regarding his plan for salvation. Hence our next principle up here on the board. And I've been trying to allude to this all morning. The only difference between the, quote, adding to salvation perversion and the subtracting from salvation one 
is the timing of the flesh's own works. That's the only difference. But it's still the flesh hijacking God's grace. And anytime that happens, it leaves the work up to man. Well, if you believe that you, you know God's not the one who gives faith that saves, what are you left doing? I have to add to it, I guess. I have to add to it so I can get to heaven, I guess. But that's not what the Bible says. Read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, so no one may boast. We're saved by grace through faith, right? So this doesn't work. But people have it perverted, religions, giant ones at that. Say, no, 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 you got to do something. And if you don't do this, uh-oh. Well, at least there's purgatory. The hell is that? Other than a lie from the pit of hell. What do you mean purgatory? Oh, I guess the cross wasn't enough. I guess when Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. I guess he was lying. Must have been hitting the pipe. I'm being ridiculous on purpose because that's how ridiculous religion is. Because if this becomes part of your gospel, if it's not there now, guess what happens? You don't get the trip to heaven. Because this has to be here. Well, what do I do then? Oh, what's good enough? Oh, I hope I hope, I hope St. Peter's at the pearly gates and he lets me in. He says, well, I put you on a scale and you had, you had this much more good stuff than bad stuff when you were on, in time. And so I, I guess I'll let you in. But wait a minute, wait a minute, no, you, you, you've only, you're really close, so I'm going to wait for some prayers to come in to pray you out of this fictitious place called purgatory, so then you can get into heaven. What the heck? Honest to goodness, what the, talk about leaving people in insecurity. Talk about robbing people of peace in time. Tell them, you'll never know, will you? Maybe you did enough, maybe you didn't. I almost whipped this against the wall. But then I wouldn't have my prop. It's just a timing issue, do you see? It's just man loves to hijack God's grace. Doing this is hijacking God's grace. Because you just perverted it. You just said, I'll take the parts that I like, but not every part. God's like, you can't do that. Because when I say I change a person, I literally change them. I literally make them new. I literally transfer them from the domain of unrighteousness to righteousness, from sin, from death to life. That's what I do. Put the cap back on. The only difference between adding to salvation, perversion, and subtracting one is the timing of the flesh's own works. The prior injects human works at the point of salvation. The latter injects them later. I just described that to you. Both perversions are unrighteous because man never has the right to supplant God's grace in any good work before or after salvation. That theology is thrown out into the trash. Lord, Lord, I never knew you. Did we not prophesy? I never knew you. You mocked with my salvation. Here's the kicker, folks. This is why I get so, like, you know, fed up and feel like throwing stuff. Because here's the kicker, and this is what I see all the time. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
Satan's not stupid. And I was like, oh, yeah, here's the gospel. There's the gospel right here. Believe in this little thing right here, this little aspect. Don't worry about the other stuff. Just take this little perverted gospel and you're good. And he disguises himself as an angel of light, as someone who's bringing, who's enlightening people. You ever heard that word, enlightenment? Spiritual enlightenment. If you haven't, go, go talk to Oprah. What a moron. I'm serious. Spiritual enlightenment. Those are the doctrines of demons. That's not truth. That doesn't set you free. That doesn't sow peace. That sows discord, confusion, horribleness, terribleness. And the flesh loves it. Why? Because these are the things that accommodate the flesh. The flesh is the antithesis of the sovereignty of God. Hates the sovereignty of God. Hates righteousness. Prefers unrighteousness. Prefers the things of this world. Hence the reason why it's harder for a camel, or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? Because the flesh loves wealth. The flesh prefers wealth. The flesh says, I have no need to be delivered. I have it all. I don't have any need. Think of, think of uh, the lukewarm believers, right? You say you don't have any need because you're rich. But God spits, vomits those people out of his mouth. Vomits them out of his mouth. How dare you try to pervert my gospel? How dare you dishonor and misrepresent me? How dare you call yourself a believer even when this is what you hold fast to? Folks, this is serious business. I'm not popular right now at all. I've lost more friends. I've got other people that normally, you know, would... Reach out to me every so often. Crickets. Why? Because this isn't popular. Even from pulpits, it's not popular. Do you understand? It's not popular. Why? Because people go like this. When they hear it, they go like this. They just run away. Why? Because that's what the truth does. Narrow is the gate. What would you like me to say? And few find it. Anyways, I truly hope you all have been mulling over what the Spirit's been saying from this pulpit. He's being very cautionary, and he's warning all of us not to make the grave mistake of either adding to or subtracting from the gospel. The results carry far beyond just the initial error up here on the board again. People talk about adding to salvation, pointing to legalism, but how often does anyone talk about the other gospel perversion, subtracting from salvation, pointing to religions that actually subtract some of God's grace in saving them? This is much of the good work the Spirit's been doing in our souls on the topic of grace and works. 
on grace and works. If you subtract from God's grace at salvation, you're now on a, ve on a vector that includes good works. Now you're actually confused about works as they're even depicted in the Bible. What was that? Sound like a giant vacuum. What was that? Is that a truck? For real? Wow, that was impressive. Much of the good work the Spirit's been doing is on this topic of grace and works. I hope you see the connection. It's really difficult to teach, folks, but like I've taught you, it's not easy being a surgeon. There's all kinds of cancerous polyps all over all of our doctrines. They've been attached, sometimes unknowingly, unwittingly. Sometimes they've been added. You know, we picked it up from some errant commentary or something, or even other pulpits or whatever, right? And I'm not a perfect teacher, by the way. What I get angry about is it's not even about people, unless they're being specifically arrogant on purpose. That really angers me. But I'm angry about the doctrines of demons. I'm angry about the fact that they exist. I'm angry about the fact that people take them and run with them. I'm angry that people are lost. I'm angry that people are confused about the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I'm angry about that thing. I'm angry that people, you know, add to the gospel. How dare they? And then create doctrines like purgatory to solve this ridiculous problem they got now with their theology. Or they subtract and then they add other perversions to deal with that initial perversion, that initial problem. I'm angry with that stuff. And it, I'm saddened that mankind, quote, allows himself to be fooled. But it's difficult because it's like a surgical procedure. You have to really get in there tight. It's really hard when, when Satan, the angel of light, says, this is grace, and then true grace is standing there, and they have the same name, how do, I, how do I extract that when some of you think this is grace and this is real grace? And they have the same name. And like a counterfeit $100 bill, they look almost identical. How do I do that? I just have to say, you see right here, you see up in the right-hand corner right here, you see that little ink spot right there? You see that? See how it doesn't have the watermark? Right there. Keep looking. Everybody's like... Right? Right there. You see it? And people are like, I don't see it. I don't see it. Right there. That's what it's like. It's really hard because Satan's really smart and he's a master counterfeiter. And he's got people spending. God, you know, Jesus said, buy from me gold refined by fire. And, and Satan's like, like a, you know, the press, right? The money press. Unholy bills. Spend this stuff instead. It looks just like the real thing. It looks just like real grace. It looks just like real salvation. It looks just like the gospel. It even says gospel on it. Matter of fact, it says gospel in bigger letters than the real gospel, Right? Spend this stuff, spend it, spend it. We're like, yeah, yeah, I can stay rich. I can keep my old life and go to heaven. Woo, yeah, I got my ticket right here. See my ticket. Yeah, keep it right here. For St. Peter, when, you know, time comes. I'll pull it out for St. Peter. No, I got mine. Dude, you're still dead in your sins. What, what's going on? You're still dead in your sins. What, what do you think? Go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Satan is a genius. I'm not. 
But we have the word, right? And if we seek, we'll find the truth. If we keep on plugging, then he'll reveal the truth to you. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, that's great. Wonderful. In light of what we just noted, we can see how grace even precedes good works. Precedes good works. And that is exactly how this passage progresses. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So that we would walk in them. This is where we left off last Sunday up here on the board. For good works. When God saves a person, he creates them in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Ephesians 2.10. Believers are born again, John 3.3. Created as new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17 that are forevermore inclined to abide in the righteousness, in righteousness, having eternal life itself. That's what you've been predestined for. That's magnificent. That's what God does at salvation. He said, I'm going to do all this for you. There's no way you can do this on your own. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But realize when I do this thing, if I choose to do it, because he chooses, you don't get just to claim Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and say, sure, I believe and I'm good. When I choose to save you, then I'm going to create you new. You will be my workmanship. And you will be a new creature. And all that new creature can do is abide in me, my son, obey, submit, etc., etc. That's all the new creature can do. This is why the Spirit has spent so much time on quote, what it means to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is wonderful, but if you don't understand what it actually means to be saved, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Well, if you don't actually know what that little word means, saved, then you don't get it. Saved from what? From hell, of course. No! From what you were born in. From spiritual death. You were born dead. That's what he's going to save you from. The dominion of death even. That's what salvation means. If you don't understand that, because you've never even considered your own depravity, well, then maybe you don't know what saved means. Maybe Ephesians 2, 8, 9 just becomes something on the back of a nickel or some little coin. So the Spirit spent a lot of time with us on what it actually means to be saved from this pulpit over the past year even. It's because many so-called Christians have rejected the true concept of salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. Up here on the board, just a little bit more on what we've been studying here this morning. The flesh merely, quote, on hold by subtracting from God's plan for salvation Satan has managed to propagate a perverted gospel where, quote, believers are saved from the penalty of sin, but nothing practical. In other words, the penalty is the lake of fire. We know this. Of course that's true. But the perverted gospels, plural, and it's not just one, propose that believers are saved from the penalty of sin, but nothing practical. 
Nothing practical has happened. Just some gavel came down in the Supreme Court of Heaven. But nothing, God didn't actually do anything. And that's when you start stripping the gospel. If the Bible says he's going to change you, if I could take the bottom, I would, but I'd ruin my thing. I love you. Right? <laughs> that's what starts happening. You start stripping. It's like, you know, you take your Cadillac to, a, you know, some bad place and you get things up on blocks after. They stripped it. They stripped it. Now the, the gospel's up on blocks. Where's that going to take you? Subtracting from God's plan for salvation, Satan has managed to propagate a perverted gospel where believers are saved from the penalty of sin, but nothing practical. Oh, we'll deal with that later. That's what happens. But you have all these practical verses in the Bible, all these practical passages, whole books. Read 1 John. Whole books. Listen, my friend, if you've got no fruit, you're in trouble. James, same thing. You're in trouble. Jesus Christ, you're in trouble. You know what I'm saying? What do you put those things after? If you've stripped the gospel, if those things actually aren't instantiated, created new in you, the ability even to do these things, to produce good works, if that doesn't happen at salvation, who's responsible for it? I'm not talking about the power of the Spirit and that kind of a thing. I know that, doctrines. I know those things. I'm talking about the power of the Spirit doesn't animate dead people. Otherwise, you'd be animating unbelievers for good works, loosely speaking. Look, by subtracting from, the, from God's plan for salvation, Satan has managed to propagate a perverted gospel where believers, quote-unquote, are saved from the penalty of sin, but nothing practical. It supposes that man later decides for himself, as if he has the right, on the issue of the sovereignty of sin. If this were true, God didn't really save them from sin itself. I gave you folks like Luther. I gave you Spurgeon. I gave you, uh, who? I don't know, I forget now who I gave you. This is not a new concept, grace being perverted this way. For, for since the beginning of, I guess, you know, probably ever since the cross and what have you, people have been trying to strip the gospel for their own purposes because that's what they want. They don't want the whole gospel. But look, if man is later able to decide for himself on the issue, issue of sovereignty of sin, then God didn't really, quote, save them from sin. Did he? No. Up here on the board. Today's perverted gospels, and there's not only one, present grace as accommodating to man. While the true gospel of Jesus Christ is designed, obviously, to save him, it is not designed to accommodate him. Rather, it is designed to accommodate the righteousness of God. Because God is perfect righteousness. God is perfect righteousness. In other words, when he saves you, he brings you to himself. He draws you. No, he, does, he chooses and then draws. No one is drawn unless he chooses to draw them. He draws you to himself. We call that reconciliation. So that when, he, when you're drawn and you're made righteous, not just by gavel, made new even, he's satisfied. We call that propitiation. He's satisfied. Do you understand? 
and he's satisfied with what he sees here. You've been made alive in Christ Jesus. That's what he's satisfied with. You're a new creature. Not just some judgment passed, but literally you're a new creature. Not just some judgment on paper. You are literally a new creature. And that's not a, that's not a mental assent thing. That's not some, that is a reality. That's not like a judicial reality. It is a reality. As much as I'm standing here before you. Do you understand? I could say to you, hey, yesterday I was broke. I won the megabucks. Now I'm rich. Right? That's a, that's a, um, a paper reality, if that makes sense. But that's different than me, me, I, now being in the realm of wealth. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what the Spirit's trying to tell you. This is a huge chasm between just understanding something judicial and something real. Right? That's the point. God makes us righteous. I mean, it's, unbel- it's unfathomable. Come on. Do you even understand how magnificent? No, we can't. It's surpassing human comprehension. It's, it's hyperbolo. It's unbelievable what he's done. And to, and to start plucking pieces off of what he's done is, is not only heinous, not only unright or unrighteous, but it's very damaging because it leaves us with having to work something out in unrighteousness for ourselves so that we don't become too confused about what's supposed to be simply stated in the Bible even. That's what subtracting from the gospel does. God is perfect righteousness. We need Him. Unrighteousness then, and I've got to pick a spot to close, unrighteousness then is the antithesis of the essence of God. Perfect righteousness will never bend to unrighteousness, but it can and has reconciled unrighteous man through the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And I'll just leave you with this. Go to 1 John 1.5. You know, John fought tooth and nail for God's grace and even his works. John was one of those guys, you, could, you, you know, you can kind of imagine him being that guy that just said, hey, look, hey, can we just talk brass tacks? He would be the guy in, you know, I hate to bring up my old, my old uh, industry experience, but in the boardroom that would say, okay, okay, this is all great. I like the sales pitch. Let's talk brass tacks. What does this really mean? That would be John. John would be the guy who would sit back. <laughs> Very good. What does this really mean, though? That's John. Because you're selling me something here. And you know, I just want to make sure that what, what you're going to deliver is actually true. That would be John. And he would sift right through it all and go, either great or BS. And that would be the end of it. That was John. John didn't hold punches. To him it was like, hey, listen, you're saying all this crap? How could it possibly tr- be true? Look at, look, at, look at your own fruit. There's no love in you. You're a jackass. And a fruit or a tree can only be a fruit after what? Its own kind. Jesus said that. You shall know them by their what? Fruit. Huh. 
You mean, you mean, you mean God's going to create us new so that we're actually going to bear a different kind of fruit? Yeah. And if, and if we don't, then that means what? Well, let's talk to John. 1 John 1.5 <clears throat> This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Just think about that. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Sound familiar? Up here on the board, look. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would, what? Walk in them. Okay, what did John say in verse 6? If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're liars. We're posers. We're pretenders. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. Do you see what John was saying there? He's like, there are true, peop- true believers and there are liars. There are posers and there's the real thing. It's that simple. To, God, to John, it was, I don't want to say black and white, but pretty much black and white. You see, the problem is, and many have suffered this, if you've got a perverted gospel, one that especially did this, subtracted, 1 John as a whole, the whole book gets perverted. It's no longer about the simplicity of being saved or not. It becomes something about, well, what about works later on? And what about this over here? Well, that's what must be what John's talking about. No. Many of you probably in your heads are going, oh, now I remember. Now I remember a couple more verses on. There's this big debacle over 1 John 1.9. Now I know how that happened. Because this is what happened, my friends. This is what happened. Pluck this off. What do I do with it now? Well, I guess I have to pervert other scripture to make it fit. Now you know. You have to do a lot of, th- a lot of thinking, folks. This stuff, um, like I said, is like surgery. And you have to do a lot of thinking. I'll leave you with this. Uh, Think of it in those terms that the Spirit has given us. What does it mean to add to the gospel? And then what are the ramifications? And what have we even seen in our own time? What happens to the rest of theology if you add to the gospel? Perversion. People end up way over here. Well, what happens if you subtract from the gospel? Perversions. You end up way over here. Think of it in those terms, and that might help you conceptualize what the Spirit's trying to say here. And just know the overarching theme is that any time we depart from the gospel proper, man's works are involved. And as soon as man's works become involved, now a person is confused about works in general. Even when they read it in the Bible. Now they're confused about works in general. You have to think about it, folks. I can only, I'm the bus driver. I can only take you so far. I, can, I just pointed to all kinds of magnificent truths. If you're not willing to, to, to meditate on this, if the football game this afternoon is more important than you to you than this stuff, then, well, I can't help you. If you're already thinking about the ice cream cone 
well, it's kind of cold now, but whatever you do after church, if you're already thinking about those things or whatever, um, you got a problem. You got a problem. It's, it's called humility. You got a problem. You have to take the time. You have to take the time. Anybody stop breathing in there? Good. That means he wants you to take the time. If you're still breathing when you get home, that means he wants you to take the time. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us this precious time to worship you through the study of your word, for giving us so very much, things that we may never fully realize, and for the faith that allows us to accept the things we cannot fully comprehend. We are so very grateful to you, Father, most of all for saving us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We deserved nothing, and your Son gave everything. Why? Because he loves us. We know we are wretched without you, Lord. And so we ask that you continue to magnify our desire to always give thanks to you. And may we share all of this good news with those still lost. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.